From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Look at this Christmas tree. Look how big that is. Whoa! ReSound is a remix. Music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio ornaments we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week. And look, these are the little babies that are going to grow. And then we're going to come cut them down one day. (laughs) I have a confession to make. I was born on Christmas Day. But before you bring out the bubbly, let me just go on record to say, it sucks. In fact, I've had such a thorn in my side about it. I wrote an essay on the topic for Morning Edition in 1990, back when I was a soprano. Every year, my mother asks me the same question. What do you want to do on your birthday, Gwen? Here's the problem. I'm a Jew. I was born on Christmas. The way I see it, I have four options. A movie, a deli, Chinese, or solitaire. For a Jew born on Christmas, there's no one to see, nothing to do, and nowhere to go. Except Miami. To its credit, my family has always tried to do something special. But let's face it, that can be a pretty tall order when every single person in every single state in this whole entire country is joined together in mutual celebration of the year's single biggest event. And you're not. Merry Christmas! Don't get me wrong, I love Christmas. I love the mood on the streets, the smell in the air, the music all around. I could do the do-it-yourself messiah myself. For unto us a child, for unto us a child is born. I've decorated trees, I've gone to midnight mass, I've even sat on Santa's lap, at which point I asked him for a different birthday. That was more than 25 years ago. And can I just say, nothing's changed. Turns out, I'm not the only one who wants to approach the holidays from a different angle. In fact, we're calling this end-of-the-year episode The Twisted Christmas Show. I may be a little Scrooge-like, but even I don't want to traumatize the younger among us who, on December 24th, put out a plate of cookies at bedtime and wake up jumping out of their skin, searching under the tree for gifts. So if there are any such children in your household, you may want to turn off the radio for the next mm, 13 minutes or so. So take a sec, change the station, or maybe put the kids to bed. All right? We good? Here we go. The idea that Santa Claus flies to every home in the world, delivering toys to every child in the world, the zillions who celebrate at least, is an idea that you can only sell to a child who's still in that beautiful, fleeting, innocent phase of childhood that includes magical thinking. When that stage comes to an end, well, it's a heartbreaker. Here's John Bewin, who puts it all in perspective. So here's the scene. September 2006. My kids are in their beds, and it's tuck-in time. First, the 10-year-old, my daughter, Harper. The busty will yet let you. Can I have my busty? He's on the hamper, I think. Your busty brown? My busty brown. 
She wants the big fat Siamese, so I go get the cat and deliver him. Oh my gosh, what a lug. Now, I never did and still don't record my home life routinely. But when my kids were small, I would bring home some gear maybe once or twice a year and get them on tape for a few minutes just to capture their voices at different ages. On this occasion, I was trying out a new toy. I'd acquired a microphone accessory for my iPod. Remember those? This was an early model, the blocky white iPod. You could stick a mic attachment into it and record stuff. I tell you this detail partly to explain the funky quality of these recordings, but also because the gadget really sparked what happened next. You see, the mic accessory had a tiny red light on it. I can't, like, keep it moving around. So next, I walk into my son's room with the iPod in my hand. Lucas is seven at the time, going on eight. I kneel on the floor and lean my elbows on his twin bed like always. He takes one look at the little red light on my recorder and says, <laughs> And then, without any further prompting, I know that Santa's fake. I know it's you. You change the car, and then you put like an invisible flying thing, and then you get some deer, you put fake horns on them, and then you um, put a light on one end of a nose, and you put a red thing over it, and it looks like a Trudolph. Mm. That's how you do it. <laughs> you and think? You go and, but you, have you seen Santa? No. <laughs> have you seen this contraption you're talking about? No. But it's like an invisible flying thing. And you make your the car into, you get like a Santa car kind of thing. And it makes you look like you're flying. And you get some reindeer. No, you get like... Now, up to this moment, as far as I know, Lucas is solidly in the Santa camp, a believer. But you can hear what's happening, right? He suspects that his mother and I are really Santa. But he's not yet entertaining the hopelessly mundane possibility that we just wait until he and his sister are asleep and go put the presents under the tree. He's trying to make sense of how we would pull off the whole flying sleigh business, along with parents across the globe. <laughs> Funny, and then you see like millions of Santas flying through the air. Because I've tr been trying to figure it out. It's like he he sees you when he's asleep. When you're asleep, he sees you when you're awake. Like you guys do. <laughs> and um, he knows if you're bad or good. Mm hmm. Who else? Who else does? Um, the teachers. <gasps> the teachers are Santa. No, again, because they don't see you when you're awake or asleep. And then you put a, thing, a tape recorder that says, ho, 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 ho. Well, how do the presents get down the chimney if Santa isn't bringing them? No, you don't get it. You fly over chimneys and you drop the, the present. Who does that? The people in the car. Who is that? Who does it? You guys. You think Mom and I do that? Yeah. Drop it. Oh, we have to be pretty busy. You think we have a, a an invisible flying contraption? <laughs> 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. Huh? I mean, like, there is no, like, flying real rain, flying reindeer. You think? That's just a fib. Maybe it's just a guy in a car that, that sneaks inside your house. Well, he gives, like, presents to a little kid. The little kid climbs through your cat box. <laughs> and then puts the presents in, climbs back out. Here Lucas is referring to a door we had at the back of that house for our cats at the time. Technically it was a dog door, big enough that he could squeeze through. Well, I would do the job. Alright, Lucas, I need to say goodnight to you, son. It's really late. So I escaped that conversation. But of course, it's not the end of the story. Two months later, now it is Christmas season, I'm going to tuck in Lucas again. His mother, my then wife, has tipped me off that she and Lucas just had the talk. Hi, Daddy. So, Luca? Yeah? What did you and Mama talk about? You not being much of Santa and Mommy being more of Santa. Hi, hi, Dad. <laughs> so, what did you ask Mommy? Um, I asked her, like, if Santa, if she's Santa, and she asked if I really wanted to know, and I said, yeah. And I almost started to cry when she said, that she was Santa. Really? Well, almost, yeah. Did it make you sad? Kinda. And I was like surprised. It's hard to believe. <sighs> when I said about the invisible flying thingy, I was just like kidding. <laughs> but I knew that, I think I kinda knew that you were Santa. But I didn't totally know. Mm. And the one thing, it's like, he's known for being fat, but also sliding down the chimney. <laughs> so it's like you have to have a really thick chimney. Yeah, and also the fire. The fire if he slid down the chimney and then... His big booty would get burnt. <laughs> Where did you get the pop gun? Pop gun? The pop gun, yeah, that's when I really believed in Santa. Because oh. it was wood and stuff. He's talking about a little wooden toy he got in his stocking one year. The kind where you pump it to push air through. And a cork on a string pops out yeah, the other end. We talked end. about it too, didn't we? Because you could really, that's something you could really imagine the elves making, couldn't you? Yeah, because it's made by wood. Last year, remember last year, Mama got that free, um, she won in some thing at her work, she won a portable DVD player, and we gave, the, we gave that to you guys for Christmas and said it was from Santa. Do you remember what you said about that? 
uh-uh. you said something like you looked at it had the whole box and everything and you said how the heck did the elves make that yeah What's sad about it? That it's just like all these years, like eight years I've been thinking about Santa being real. Well, maybe not eight, six or something. It's like uh, hard. I don't really get what's sad. Was it fun to think that there was a Santa? It's yeah. certainly not so much fun. It's like magic, isn't it? Yeah. But the thing I didn't get was the he's he watches you when he's asleep, when you're asleep and awakened. Mm-hmm. And he's always watching you, and that's not true. You're at school and... Mm-hmm. It's not really possible, is it? How could he do that? And watch all the kids at once, all the kids in the whole world? Yeah, I thought of it as like everything being read and he would sit at like a bunch of computers, like a whole line of red computers and he would watch them. And then if that kid does something bad, he'd go to the next one. And there'd be like a button, good or bad, and you'd press it. And then he'd like check it off for his list. You go to the next one, the next computer, the next computer. It was weird. All right, my son. Sleep on it. Okay. Tomorrow's another day. Kiss daddy. That was cool. Love you tens, Bubba. Love you tens, too. It's like a whole mystery <laughs> that I've been trying to solve. So, Lucas, how old are you now? 17. I don't tuck him in anymore, but I'm happy to say he still talks to the old man. Just the other night over dinner, he wanted to talk about time. People take time for granted, he said. What is it, really? I said, I have no idea. I do know it flies. Anyway, Lucas's sense of wonder is alive and well. So I guess we didn't kill that off by telling you a fantasy story and then telling you it wasn't true. No. I think maybe that just sparked my imagination more, creating a mystery for me to solve. Do you think that if you have kids, you'll do the Santa thing with them? Tell them that story? Definitely, for sure. That was No Santa, produced by John Bewin for his podcast, Seen on Radio. 
They spell that S-C-E-N-E on radio from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. If this story has put you in a sentimental mood that you want more of, you may want to check out a playlist of family stories we put together for the holiday season. It includes work by Jonathan Goldstein, The Longest Shortest Time, and another story by John Bewin called Scared, about the bittersweet joy of watching his daughter grow up. You can hear them at thirdcoastfestival.org. My only advice? Bring Kleenex. While shopping at Kmart for the holidays, be sure to stop by by your ladies' and girls' apparels department for holiday gift-giving ideas. You always know Christmas is coming, sometimes even before Thanksgiving, by the unending stream of Christmas music. On the radio, in the elevator, at your favorite coffee shop, grocery store, or restaurant. Most of it is cloying and schmaltzy. And if I had to venture a guess, written expressly for the commercial value, as in the potential royalties. Until this one. Here's Lucy. Our director will be here any minute and we'll start rehearsal. Director? What director? My name is Lee Mendelson. I'm a writer-producer-director of network television specials. And I first met Vince Guaraldi back in 1963. Oh no, we're doomed. My name is Jerry Grinelli. I was the drummer on the Charlie Brown Christmas record. This will be the worst Christmas play ever. This is Jean Schultz, the widow of Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts comic strip. Okay, Mr. Director, the cast is set. Take over. In 1963, I was doing a documentary on Charles Schultz and the Charlie Brown characters, and I was driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, and I was trying to figure out what kind of music would fit a documentary. And I heard, for the first time, going over the bridge, Cast Your Fate to the Wind, which I thought was a fabulous recording. And something in my, in my mind said, you know, that's the kind of music maybe that I'm looking for for, for, a doc, for this documentary because it's both it's adult-like but also childlike. It seemed to be fit our characters. And uh, so they arranged a lunch meeting, and Vince and I hit it off right away. He loved the Peanuts characters. About a week later, he called. He says, i got to play something for you. And I said, oh, please don't play it over the phone because, you know, you can't hear the highs, the lows. He just said, i got to play it for you before I forget it. And the song was called Linus and Lucy. This recording became a social phenomenon, as did the TV show. Half the viewing audience in the United States watched it. There was no cartoon industry, per se, like that on primetime television. There wasn't Charlie Brown dolls. (laughs) You know, there was this... So many influences came together at that point. Lee and Bill and Sparky, Sparky being Charles Schultz, they had done commercials for Ford, so they had the little kid voices. What I heard was just how marvelous he thought Vince Guaraldi was and how he had captured something about the lilting quality of the kids. You can almost, the way they walk along and bounce a little bit, that he had captured that in his music. It 
It's probably, I would guess, the first time that jazz was ever put on into a cartoon. I could be wrong, but I, it was certainly the first time it ever been done on the animated network special. David Benoit, as a kid, is listening to this music and decides he wants to become a piano player. George Winston, as a kid, listening to this music, decides that's what I want to do. And that's how he gets into it. Wynton Marcellus, although he came from a musical background, was totally affected by the music. And, of course, the Linus and Lucy theme became the theme of the comic strip. When Sparky walked into a restaurant or a place, if there was a piano player and he recognized him, he'd start the Linus and Lucy theme, and everyone would look up. The, the music came to, came to mean the characters. Here he comes! Attention, everyone! Here's our director! And then uh, there was a nice instrumental Vince wrote called Christmas. Well, it had no name. It was an instrumental that opened the show. And when we looked at the show about a month before it was to go on the air, I said, that's such a pretty melody. Maybe we should try and find some people to put some lyrics to it. I called the people I knew in the business. All the people I knew in music were busy. So I sat down with an envelope. I'll never forget this at our kitchen table over in Marin and put dots and dashes for the notes and wrote uh, Christmas Time is Here in about 10 minutes. It was a poem that just kind of came to me. Never changed the words to this day. It was only about a minute long. And Vince got a bunch of little kids together to sing it. Mendelssohn was kind of a holder of Vince and Charlie Schultz's vision. People with some sort of quirky little vision. Vince used to call, Vince Garelli used to call his tunes his little dreams. And Vince came to play every night. You know, that trio was, he came to play every night. It's amazing. Vince finally wrote a standard. Christmas Time is Here has been recorded as a standard, and Vince always wanted to write a standard. So he made it. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Vince Garaldi, A Charlie Brown Christmas, was produced by Ben Manila for the Peabody Award-winning series Inside the National Recording Registry from Studio 360 in New York. Our next story takes place in 1998 in Birmingham, England, where a misunderstanding erupted in a furor when the Birmingham City Council tried to get a little creative. Well, that showed them, as Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist Podcast found out. The War on Christmas. When did that start? Upon the birth of Jesus Christ himself, when King Herod ordered all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem be killed? In 1644, when Oliver Cromwell's Puritans passed an ordinance prohibiting Christmas celebrations in England? 
1659, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony Puritans managed to get Christmas banned for 22 years for being a pagan festival? Or was it in 1998, in Britain's second largest city, Birmingham? If you picked up practically any newspaper at the time, you would have read that Birmingham City Council had renamed Christmas Winterville. Birmingham will celebrate the festive season as usual this year with carol singing, fairy lights and street entertainment, but don't call it Christmas! Council officials have renamed it Winterville in the hope of creating a more multicultural atmosphere in keeping with the city's mix of ethnic groups. A politically correct decision to call Christmas festivities Winterville. Cancel Christmas, call it Winterville! Birmingham Council, claiming it was anxious not to offend those in other faiths, renamed Christmas Winterville. Political correctness gone mad. Crazy council chiefs provoked outrage last night after naming Christmas festivities Winterville. Political correctness Political gone correctness mad. Gone Political mad. correctness gone mad. Churchmen believe the Winterville name is intended to avoid offending Muslims and other minorities. Political correctness gone mad. A municipal brainwave called Winterville, renaming the annual holiday and likening it to shopping rather than shepherds. Political correctness gone mad. The word Winterville has a nasty echo of communists who banned any Christian connotation in East Germany. Political correctness gone mad, gone mad. And verily, in Britain, Christmas was banished. Now we sing Winterville carols and wear ironic Winterville sweaters. We hang up our Winterville stockings for Father Winterville to fill with Winterville gifts. And when we turn on the radio, we rock around the Winterville tree to these festive tunes. Winterville. 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 Yep, that's exactly what happened. Well, it's about as true as most things that have been said about Winterville, which came about thanks to one Mike Chubb. Hi, my name is Mike Chubb. Um, you could say that I was the one that has caused a furore that is Winterville. In the late 1990s, Mike Chubb was the head of events for Birmingham City Council. From our point of view, from my, myself as the, the manager of this huge event section in Birmingham City Council, and my team of something like 30, um, we, we came up with the terminology Winterville. Um, uh, it's like a, port, a portmanteau word for winter and, and, and festival. I thought it was a portmanteau of winter and interval. I must say, to sort of suggest this hiatus in the year. No, it's it's between winter and festival. I think it's a good portmanteau. It's quite elegant. Until it became shorthand for war on Christmas with a side of political correctness gone mad. It started well enough with Birmingham's first Winterval in 1997. Events ran over several weeks and were attended by hundreds of thousands of people without complaints from the press or the populace. So it's not clear why the following year's Winterval became a wincident. But... It did. In November 1998, the then Bishop of Birmingham, Mark Santa, no, not as in clause, issued his Christmas message to the clergy of the diocese. It said, I wonder what madness is in store for us this Christmas. I confess I laughed out loud when our city council came out with Winterval as a way of not talking about Christmas. No doubt it was a well-meaning attempt not to offend, not to exclude, not really to say anything at all. And soon... The papers got hold of it. 
On the 8th of November 1998, the Birmingham Sunday Mercury reported that the Bishop of Birmingham had condemned the City Council's attempt to rebrand Christmas. What happened then was, of course, all those papers thought, hey, this is a good wheeze, you know, not much news at Christmas, is there? Let's use an interesting story. Did you know Birmingham City Council have cancelled Christmas or renamed Christmas Winterville? Thereafter, it went nationwide and worldwide. Pretty much the only person who didn't notice was Mike Chubb. I, I, was, I was so busy at the time, I didn't take in any of the, uh, the media furore at the time. It just didn't touch me at all, because I, I literally we were working 41 days non-stop, day and night. Busy work waging the war on Christmas, except that wasn't really what Mike and the council were doing during the war on the war on Christmas. In this war, only one side turned up to the battlefield. It was the media, really, that actually took it, took it on. People like the Daily Mail, just go on to Google and Google Winterville and just look at the organisations who are up in arms about it. They're up in arms because they've been led to believe that that's what Birmingham City Council intended. It wasn't? No. Christmas was never off the page. It was part of a 41-day, if you like, festival of events. But people thought you were trying to rebrand Christmas. Yes, they said it's political correctness gone mad. But actually, political correctness had not gone mad. Political correctness had not even been a factor. Because the council's events team was not trying to rebrand Christmas. It was trying to bundle together a whole lot of events occurring in the weeks before and after Christmas. Birmingham is Britain's second largest city, with a very culturally and ethnically diverse population. There's a lot of stuff going on, particularly at that time of year. Hence, they decided to use the marketing banner, Winterville. You feel like it does what it says on the tin. It, it markets a major festival at a time of the year called winter. Um, and there are all sorts of things that happen in winter, you know. Diwali happens in winter, BBC Children in Need happens in winter. You know, Chinese New Year happens in winter. New Year's Eve happens in winter. Hanukkah, Eid. Oh, and Christmas. Christmas lights, Christmas market, Christmas trees, Christmas carols. It was still called Christmas. You know, that particular event, which included the Christmas lights switch on, it was about a month of events over Christmas. That came under Christmas. It was termed Christmas. It had its own brochure, Christmas. <laughs> but unfortunately people decided not to to see that. They, they decided that that's what the council did. Shortly after the war on Winterville erupted in the papers, the council actually issued a statement that they were not renaming Christmas, and Christmas was very visibly a major part of the Winterville lineup. But which story sticks more? The true one that Winterville was a marketing and admin umbrella, or the lie that Winterville had come to kill Christmas? Nobody actually could see the simplicity of the Winterville brand, um, but they read into it what they wanted, you know, to give voice to their own aspirations and prejudices. Now, personally, I've noticed significantly more uproar about the war on Christmas than actual evidence that that war is being waged. Some people seem very eager for there to be a war on Christmas so they can leap to Christmas's defence. Though Christmas has achieved cultural dominance way beyond religious lines, to cast it as an underdog provides a cover for taking a pop at other cultures, and to create and maintain divisions in society. But 
Christmas is a pagan Roman Christian festival, celebrated by people from all sorts of cultures with all sorts of beliefs, including me, an ethnically Jewish atheist. Christmas is not threatened by multiculturalism. It is multicultural. People don't like change. They're scared of change. And to a certain extent, Winterval was used as an example of a change that's gone too far because they misread what the organisers are trying to do. And they continued to misread it. After 1998, Birmingham didn't run Winterval again. But in the following years, the Winterval myth was repeated dozens of times in Britain's national newspapers. In fact, in 2011, after running another such piece, the Daily Mail had to print a retraction saying that Winterval did not rename or replace Christmas. But too little too late, Winterval had already become the byword for political correctness gone mad. And it still continues. Just a few weeks ago in the British Parliament, Shailesh Vara, the Conservative MP for North West Cambridgeshire, told Prime Minister Theresa May that minority communities should respect the views and traditions of mainstream Britain. And that means and that means Christmas is not winterval and Christmas trees are not festive trees. I do agree with my old friend. Well, we can all agree with him that Christmas is not winterval, since it never was winterval. And it's so simple. It's not it's not it's not difficult. It's just certain people just decide to say what they want to say. Maybe they want to create a bit of a stir because it sells papers. But in a way, as a marketing story, it is very successful because the brand really clung on. If you just called it, I don't know, Birmingham Winter Holidays, no one would Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's just unfortunate that the brand had been so misinterpreted. That's right. That's right. Yeah. If you had your time again, would you do it differently? No. Good for you. People have got to experiment. They've got to. They've got to introduce, and and the public needs to be introduced to new, exciting initiatives. Because otherwise, we're just going to live in a very dull society. It's not too dull with Mike Chubb around. He's now the director of the Ideas Factory events company, staging some very exciting looking things. Find it at theideasfactory.biz. And thanks, Mike, for letting me dredge up the Winterval thing again. It's not all bad, though. Waterford in Southern Ireland is throwing its fifth annual Winterval right now, and it is the city's biggest event every year. So Winterval lives on. As does Christmas. Winterval was produced by Helen Zaltzman with Chica Ayers and Devin Taylor for the Illusionist podcast. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? While the Birmingham City Council gave Christmas an accidental elbow to the ribs, producer Stephanie Fu was quite intentional when she wrote a sketch illustrating what would happen if a public radio show applied their exotic holiday treatment to Christmas. Here's an excerpt. The fresh, clean scent of pine needles, glittering, colorful orbs, a large, bearded man in a red and white fur suit. What do all of these things have in common? They're elements of Christmas, a joyous Christian celebration. I spoke to Pastor Max Grant at the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich, Connecticut, to learn more. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Max. Oh, you're very welcome. So tell us, 
I'm not tremendously familiar with Connecticut, besides being one of the original American colonies. So what does Connecticut look like right now? Connecticut is a place that has a long-standing tradition of putting lit candles in windows. You see a lot of homes that are decorated just in a very kind of quiet and beautiful way. That sounds absolutely splendid. So, Max, tell me a little about what Christmas is. Christmas is... Uh, for, for the Christian Church, Christmas is the day when we celebrate the birth and the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, who we understand to be the Messiah um, here on earth. What does the Messiah mean? Messiah, or in the Greek, Christos or Christ, means the Anointed One. And so the Anointed One is the Savior who is going to redeem or save God's people. I see. Sort of like Neo in the Matrix. (laughs) A little bit, yes, yes. Um, Neo in the Matrix very much partakes of um, a lot of the symbolism that we understand uh, surrounding the Messiah. Ah, so help us understand. Christmas is like Neo's birthday. It is sort of like Neo's birthday. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's, it's the arrival of Neo, in a way, when he picks the pill that he's going to take and um, makes the commitment to go on this journey. Uh, for Christians, Christmas is when um, God in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, commits to going on this journey with humanity. Max told me that the Christian God, Jesus Christ, was born to a virgin in a stable. That night, a bright star shone above him and shepherds and astrologers alike were drawn to him by that star. So it really is a kind of vision of everybody going, and it's not clear that they know what the star means, but there's just something incredibly powerful about it. What a lovely image. I understand that this is an origin story. So how is this story connected to today's Christmas celebrations? Well, (laughs) that's an excellent question. I think the call that Christmas invites us to hear is this call to see one another as fellow travelers and to come together in all the ways that we can. Um, And some people give gifts on Christmas Day, which is historically when the wise men were thought to actually make it to the manger to present their gifts. Oh, I see. So Christmas is a lot about generosity. And gift giving. Yes, especially the stuff about stockings really comes from the legends around St. Nicholas, obviously Santa Claus. Um, and he's a figure from the 4th century AD. Right. So how does this Santa Claus, did I say that right? Uh, yes, you did. <laughs> uh, who is this Santa Claus exactly? I know the mythology is that he brings gifts to young children. Yes, yes. He became very interested in and committed to um, serving the poor and especially children. But um, he is also the patron saint of pawnbrokers and of thieves. Is that why he breaks into people's houses every Christmas? (laughs) There's also a little bit of that, maybe, yeah. So for people who haven't experienced Christmas before and might want to try replicating it at home, what tips would you suggest? Uh, so I would, I would suggest find, uh, find some candles if you can, because it's all about the relationship between darkness and light. And the other thing that I would say is find some really you know, inspirational music and really listen to it. 
Wow. To be honest, it doesn't sound quite so different from many of the other holidays that people around the world celebrate. It's about togetherness, humanity, and light. Absolutely. It sort of sounds to me like Diwali on steroids and with the Matrix. (laughs) We'll take it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Max. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. Well, same to you and to all those who are celebrating. Morning Program was produced by This American Life's Stephanie Fu for her side project, Pilot. Now, reindeer get a lot of play around this time of year. Donner and Blitzen and all that. But who among us has ever even seen one, let alone touched one, eaten one, or raced one? Answer? Kathy Fitzgerald. Who in this next story travels to the far north of Finland, where racers strap on their skis, take up the reins, and race a Rudolph in hopes of being crowned the Reindeer King. I'm treading, gingerly, across the frozen ice on the middle of Lake Inori. We've travelled about 300 kilometres into the Arctic Circle, to the wild, empty landscape in the far north of Finland. The sun's dropping, and the late afternoon skies jing clear. There is actually many races during the springtime, but only the best of the best of the best are racing here now. So this is the end of the season, the biggest race of all. Elena Moratia, a Sami woman in her 20s, tough and beautiful in a motorcycle jacket. She's helping to organise this weekend's championship, which will see the 24 fastest reindeer compete to be crowned the Reindeer King. Even people from Norway and Sweden are coming here. And now we actually just had a conversation this morning that we have to try to get some reindeer from Russia because they have really, really strong and, like, huge reindeer bulls. So, But won't that just mean that the Russian reindeer win every year for the next, <laughs> the next decade? Be, yeah, but, you know, I know uh, Sami people and Finnish people, what's the word? It's, like, competitive. Competitive. Yeah. So it's a good challenge for them. <laughs> They'll up their reindeer game. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work to turn a frozen lake into a reindeer racing track. I'm sharing the ice with nine reindeer, half a dozen trucks, three snowplows, and a handful of herders in huge fairy hats. This year was really, really difficult because the snow started to melt so early. And reindeer won't run if it's really slippery and icy. So they need to get all the snow from the land and bring it here so the whole village you have been working yesterday and today we're on the way actually we have to move (laughs) (laughs) Elena heads to a pub called Papana the reindeer dropping where the younger herders like to meet It sells pizza topped with bear salami and has a red squirrel skin hung above the bar. But I'm at a hotel called Tahovi with an older crowd. This is where the big social events of race weekend have taken place, ever since the championship was first held in Inari, back in 1959. Tonight, the northern lights flicker above the frozen hotel car park. 
Moustaches are trimmed and shoes polished. The vodka flows. The tiny dance floors full of bobbing couples, bumping into each other like dodgems. And presiding over it all, Aero Mugger, a crooner in his 60s, whose biggest hit is Por Amigo Sudel Mar, the reindeer herder's kiss. Por Amigo Sudel so I'm Kaisa Mikula. I've been working here for 30 years or so. And then my mother before that, so I've heard a lot of the stories from her as well. Back in the 60s when the races started, it was quite wild, from morning till late evening. And we had a separate bar, and they opened it at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they used to bring the racing reindeer and tie them on the trees around the hotel. I heard there is always a danger that if you come to the reindeer races, you might go home with a reindeer herding husband. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and you know, before the calving season starts, which is in uh, about four weeks or so from now, they have time. Do you have your eye on any herders in particular? She does. <laughs> she does. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Ah. A bit of walls and sometimes maybe a little bit of polka. Just a bit of humpa pumpa. <laughs> Does the herder know that you're keen? Uh, I think we have like this cat mouse situation going on. So. <laughs> and I think they still have the tradition that, you know, that's the ideal partner for you is the person who has a lot of reindeer. <laughs> so you can make your herd bigger. The game is on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just catch me. Early morning. Today, at last, the reindeer king will be crowned. The sun is shining and there's hardly no wind. I don't remember when conditions have been this good. A winter village of tents and stalls has appeared on the ice. I have fox, beaver, goat. And what's the warmest? In hats or gloves. You can buy goatskin shoes, orange fox fur hats, jewellery made from antlers, leather biker jackets. Herders inspect the paintwork on shiny new snowmobiles as if they were new cars. My name is Ida. There are a few tourists. Husband? <laughs> What's your name? Hello, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm uh, come from Taiwan, and my name is Robert. We are just, just so excited. But mostly it's local families here for a day out. Little kids build castles out of snow. Toddlers in oversized sunglasses and bright pink ski suits are hauled around like rock stars in tiny sledges. And everywhere there's food, most of it made from reindeer. I think there is rye bread here and reindeer meat, of course, and potato salad and and this lingonberry sauce. Mm. 
sliced into very thin slices when it's frozen and then you stir fry it with butter. I would choose uh, reindeer steak with the lingonberries. Good with hummus yes. and broad beans. Very, very delicious. Yes, salt and pepper and then mashed potatoes with that. It's so good. We eat always reindeer in the Christmas. <laughs> Normally the jockeys race against each other in groups of four or six. But today, for the big race, they'll fly around the two-kilometre track one at a time, against the clock. The world record at the distance is two minutes, 27 seconds. Sayer Matero. We are alone there <laughs> because the track is very long. There is nothing else but me and my reindeer. And the speed today is very fast, of course. Is there a chance that you might break the world record? Uh, mm, perhaps, but I'm not sure if my reindeer can do that. <laughs> the jockeys laugh and joke together as they wait to compete. They wear lurid lycra ski suits, orange, pink, red, under puffy padded coats, eat yogurt, stretch tired calves, and cheer each other on. Marco Kiel Pavara. It's fun, yeah. Yeah. All these people are friends. We all know each other. We have fun in the races and in the after races. And you look after each other? Yeah, of course, of course. It's always competing, but we are friends, so... And do you have a good reindeer for today? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very nervous. Best reindeer I have in 19 years. So What's his name? 21. Blackjack. Yeah, OK. Oh, no, you're on. OK. As I watch Marco race, I get talking to the young jockey next to me, Tuya Varela. She's 18 and has already been racing for five years. Can you remember the first time you raced? Yeah, I can, I fell. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, when the cages opened, I fell. But I had my own reindeer, which was like really nice to me. It turned around, are you OK? <laughs> my dad gave me that reindeer and I trained it on my own and he didn't even need the leash, he walked behind me. and He just followed you? Yeah, he was so nice to people. He gave to living room and everything. <laughs> what do you do when you're not racing? I'm at high school studying and hunting with my dad. What do you hunt? Moose, bear, birds, hares. Are you a very good shot? Quite. I shot one moose when I was 12, so... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm the youngest female in Finland who has done that. So your dad believes in giving you opportunities? Yeah. Every time if you go hunting, he first asks, do I want to shoot the moose that our dog is barking at? Because he wants to give me those good experiences on hunting and on reindeer things and everything. 
Some of girls my age, they couldn't even imagine being out for the whole week and, and being with animals like this you can't control. And I'm like, I raise reindeer and I hunt. <laughs> You're a bit different. Yeah, but it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, my friends are proud of me that I can raise this reindeer. Tuya's family owned and trained the reindeer that currently holds the world record over one kilometre. When I first got to race with it, it hurt his leg and we had to put him away. It was like so hard for us. I cried and you shouldn't cry like over a reindeer, it's just a reindeer, but still I'm proud we had a chance to get that kind of a reindeer. One by one, the reindeers race around the course and arrive at the finish line, panting. How did you do? Crap. <laughs> it's not a good day for Marco. Was it you or the reindeer? Both. <laughs> reindeer was going in the outside of the track. He's taking the longest way. Yeah, longest way, yeah. Legs. In the half point, legs told me, now you should stop. Your, le- oh, your <laughs> yeah. legs said yeah, enough leg. now. Yeah, my leg. Or for sale. What happened? <laughs> it just jumped out. Didn't stay on the track. Yeah, he don't want to come because he has a lot of people. Oh. Oh. <sighs> Why? I don't know. There's no reason. He's very fast. Is he? Yeah. Until he jumps out of the track. Yeah. Seuraava. Mr. Reindeer. Mr. Reindeer. The final reindeer, Pickalock, sets off from the starting box. I stand in the middle of a group of herders and we squint at the tiny animal and jockey as they speed around the far side of the lake and then curve back towards home. All eyes are on the clock. The jockeys pile over to hug the winning rider. Hannah Mikola. Did you know when you were out there? No, no, I didn't know. Because his running technique is a bit different than normal because he's a big reindeer and long, long jumps. A long stride. Yes, yes. So it's hard to say if it's going fast or slow. It's really hard to say. So you really didn't know until you got round? No, no. <laughs> Oh, reindeer yeah. behind you. I watch a group of reindeer herders try out the cowbells. One sings for me, a yoik of appreciation for a newly born reindeer. The crowd starts to leave the ice. Stallholders begin to pack up. Soon there'll be nothing here, just the silent lake, waiting for next year. That was an excerpt of Burn Slush produced by Kathy Fitzgerald for the BBC World Service. 
Okay, so you get to open our Christmas off, okay? We here at Third Coast wish everyone out there in listening land a very peaceful, relaxing holiday season. What's wrong? And since that's impossible, it's a we hope that you're able to do the best you can. As a friend of mine always says, maintain high boundaries and low expectations. <laughs> Makes sense to me. See you next year. Mommy and Daddy were just trying to be funny. I'm sorry. I didn't think you would cry. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>